Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, Alina, and of course, my one, my only podcasting love, don't tell Alex, Chris. <laughs> Chris, who have we got on today? I think that's possibly the nicest thing you've ever said to me, apart from here's a bacon sandwich. <laughs> when did I offer you a bacon sandwich? You didn't. You went off and got bacon sandwiches, and I took the tent down, and you came back and went, oh, that bacon was good. Like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot. Anyway, tell us who we got on. (laughs) So uh, we've gone slightly different today, and we've got Sophie Cairns, who is a journalist, who set about trying to climb the seven tallest volcanoes around the globe. And she's here today to talk about her first book, Climbing the Seven Volcanoes. Uh, Sophie, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm quite thank you. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. I have a question before we actually start the questions. Yes, let's go ahead. Are you just a little bit mad? I might be. I think by this point, it's pretty much confirmed. (laughs) Too much time in the high high mountain uh, mountain air. We like mad people. You're amongst good company here. (laughs) Anyway, let's do some questions, because I want to know more. I want to know which of the seven volcanoes you climbed. I want to know why you climbed these volcanoes. I want to know all of these things of... What makes you just that little bit mad? Oh, and while we're recording this podcast, convince Chris to start doing mountain climbing and volcano climbing because his age is not an excuse. Christopher. No, it's not Chris. <laughs> we're the same age pretty much. Uh, no, the thing is, uh, I think it, mountain climbing is a very, very particular sport. I think it does drive you mad in the end, but in a really good way in that it makes you do things you think you never thought you'd you'd do ever. And when you get through them, when you get to the top, hopefully, you find out that you actually could do them all this time. And knowing that gives you kind of a a new view on things. That sounds very general, but it's how I came out of it at the end. So uh, the Seven Volcanoes was a challenge to climb the highest volcano on each continent in a record time. And at the time when I first began about, oh, 10 years ago almost, Uh, The record time was 18 months to do the whole circuit. And my aim was to do that in about four months, which in itself is a bit bonkers. And the main reason why it was bonkers at the time was I have asthma. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, where I'm originally from. And when I was three, I was diagnosed with severe, uh, very boring word, eosinophilic asthma, and which means I couldn't really breathe 
well during sports. So I was always the kid at school who would never never be in the sports teams, never picked by my friends to join in the races. And if I had to be forced to run, I'd be coming in about half a mile before everyone else. I mean, after everyone else. So that was really why it was a mad idea to begin with. Sounds, sounds like my PE history at school as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's no fun as it being left out of teams the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Always last to be picked for the games. Like, oh, I can play. No, no, you can't. You don't want you. <laughs> yeah, oh, she's slow. Ugh, go away. Um, no, but that was my whole background, my whole childhood, basically. And the reason why I began doing the volcanoes was actually um, I began climbing mountains five years prior. So when I just turned 30, so again, never too late to, to begin these huge endeavors, I guess. But my father passed away very suddenly. Um, he was very young at the time, uh, 64, from uh, esophageal cancer. So it's the gullet which the food goes down, basically. And it was such a huge shock because he was really quite healthy. And I mean, he was a smoker. So, you know, there is that. But he wasn't the kind of guy... He was 6'3", he was well-built, he was just, you know, robust. And he used to love walking. And I was, at the time, halfway across the globe in Shanghai working as a journalist. And by the time I found out he was passing away, I and I'm an only child, so, you know, there were no other siblings there, just my mum and my dad's mum, sadly. So I missed saying goodbye to him by two hours. And it was just one of those awful, awful life events. And it was my first real big shock of my life, I think, that I had to go through. Um, it was the first time I've ever been close to death, I guess, as in witnessing death in the family. So that was, that just really shook me to the core. And I just had this huge urge to do something to commemorate him. And I think when you are in so much emotional pain, it's quite a human reaction to want to match it with physical pain. <laughs> in some way, it sounds strange, but it kind of makes the pain concrete and then you can deal with it and somehow hopefully make it useful in some way. So I began to raise money for cancer research through climbing one mountain a year. And that was how the whole thing began. And eventually that became the Volcanoes Project after five years. I've got to say, you embraced the pain and did something useful. I just suppress it and become a lunatic. How did you do that then? <laughs> I just I just stopped being, when somebody dies or somebody close to me dies, I just shut down emotionally and I just, that's it. Don't cry, nothing, none of those things. Something I'm working through in therapy. Um, but yeah, no, I can't, I can't deal with the emotional damage for that. So I should really do something inspiring and, I don't know, raise things for cancer research or something because what you've done is bloody incredible i think it can go either way to be honest i think people just respond in very individual ways and um, i'm really bad at hiding what i feel my, my face always shows exactly what i'm feeling which is not really an asset in the workplace so <laughs> i just had to kind of let it out somehow but yeah i have friends who also try to just suppress things and stay in control which also also could be a, a good thing too sometimes but i, I just uh, yeah i'm more of a vomit my emotions out kind of person okay so you you mentioned you're not very sporty first of all you have asthma so all of these things that could basically stop you from climbing these seven volcanoes what training did you undertake to actually combat all of these issues so um at the time, I just didn't really know. So I thought, well, I have this uh, plan to go and climb Kilimanjaro now in about a year's time. 
I guess I should join the gym. So I joined the gym and I just began really just um, going on the treadmill. And I went from being not able to run about five, no, three minutes. I, I really couldn't. I went from that to running about half an hour a day. And I, did, I didn't just wing it. I went online and found all these training programs for, you know, hardcore athletes in the vain hope that I could perhaps get to be like them one day. So I did uh, a strength program and all this stuff and um, also began eating better. But the main thing I did for the volcanoes was I knew I had to be a lot stronger and fitter than usual than my previous climbs. So I began carrying water weight in my backpack on the treadmill. So uh, some of these climbs actually say you have to be strong enough to carry 50 pounds of weight on your back. Now, I only weigh 120 pounds, or 20, no, 130 pounds now. Uh, so that was a lot of weight for my body frame. And I began just um, filling my backpack with bottles of water. And one liter is one kilogram. So to get to 25 kilograms, I just began putting one more liter in my bag every week whilst going on the treadmill at an incline. And everyone thought I was bonkers just doing that, saying, are you in the right place? Are you feeling all right? Uh, would you want to just take a break because you're really sweating a lot? And um, then, then I also did a thing where um, I was in London at the time working and you know, there's no hills anywhere really to climb, to practice on. So I Googled the, the biggest um, tube station staircase I could find. And apparently the biggest, the longest one is um, Russell Square in Bloomsbury. So it has the most steps. And I would actually go really geeky and calculate how many steps would equal a typical day of climbing on my volcanoes. And it wasn't like 30 times up the staircase. So I thought, right, okay, I'll just have to do it. And I got my backpack on with the water inside, took the lift down to the platform, climbed up the staircase, about 25 times I managed. And every time I went up, I was dodging these tourists coming down in the way. So they, they were a bit surprised, but it seemed to do the trick though. So that seemed to work quite well. I, my God, you, I'm a little bit speechless and I'm struggling to find words and I'm just imagining you running up and down Russell Square. I went to uni there, so I know the square. I've had to climb those stairs once or twice. That's a lot. That's a lot of steps. Yeah, it wasn't much fun. And the thing is, you know how that place smells a bit not fragrant? Yeah, that didn't help. <laughs> Genuinely written all that down. So... Uh... <laughs> No, you have not. Don't lie. Hang on, hang on. Let me turn my camera on. It's probably going to kill my internet, but... I actually wouldn't recommend it. Oh, brilliant. Yeah? Is, is that yeah, how you're going to start sweat. training? Well, I've, I've gone with... I'm pro I might go for a jog this afternoon. Uh, eat better. <laughs> I don't know. I still like curry for breakfast, so... You know what? Curry's really good in some ways because you're building calories. And um, for Antarctica, I knew it would be really cold uh, every day. And you burn... You can burn up to about 6,000 calories a day climbing in Antarctica. Because it's so cold, you're constantly fighting off, just trying to stay warm and fighting off the cold. And and I had to actually carbo load every day to gain five kilograms of weight. So I was actually literally eating, you know, two pizzas a day, then protein shakes, then a bag of M&Ms, like peanuts, then spaghetti. I just constantly eating to gain all this weight, but healthy weight, hopefully. And I gained about, yeah, five kilos towards the end of that I even Googled the diet that Bridget Jones uh, actress um, took for her film. It was at Renée Zellweger. 
And apparently she drank one pint of Guinness a day. Uh, I couldn't quite manage that, but it was that kind of thing. You're just eating, eating, eating for months. So that was, that was fun. I think I've been in training for that for a good chunk of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so was, uh, was uh, Mount Sidley in Antarctica the most challenging volcano you went up? Um, I think in some ways it was. It, it is the most dry climate of all the seven places I went to. So that is tough when you're climbing because it's just uh, wicking away all the moisture from your, your breath. And that's very tough. It was, it's like a big desert. It's so dry and huge. And the ice, the whiteness everywhere reflects the sun onto you. So you feel even more hot than you would elsewhere when you're actually climbing. And I actually had sunburn in the, my mouth, in my mouth's uh, roof of my mouth from the, the beams bouncing off the ground and the snow into my mouth. So that was pretty painful. Um, yeah, I mean, but the climate itself is not very difficult because Mount Sidley is a one of the lower volcanoes at 4,200 meters thereabouts. Um, it is very remote though. So to get there, you have to actually fly on an Illusion 76 from, oh, from Chile, uh, Punta Arenas, over the Drake Passage, which is brilliant because you have a screen showing you the waves below the plane. And you land in Union Glacier Camp, which is fantastic. Uh, which is quite inland. But then you have to take a second flight whenever the window, the weather window clears up from Union Glacier Camp to Mary Birdland. That's four, uh, four more hours of flight on a Twin Otter. And that's really the boondocks of Antarctica. I mean, you really are inland, inland. And if you break down there, you're pretty much screwed. See, I swore for you. Yay. Um, and so we were only the third expedition to get to Mount Sully since it was first climbed, here's some history, in 1990. So it was quite epic. And it's just that the logistics are very, very difficult to get there in the first place. And we had bush pilots who were used to flying in, I don't know, like sort of Canadian outback kind of thing, like really tough guys. Take their shirts off or something at the top. Uh, oh, who, sorry, the Russians? Am I getting confused? There was a couple of people. I mean, that was an Elbrus, but they, but our Russian guys did it in Sydney too. They do it in my most peaks, apparently. So <laughs> I don't know what that's about. I mean, I do. It's about being macho and strong. But I think, oh no, I know. I remember our Russian teammates because I had three of them. The the guys, the two guys, tried to take, to take off their shirts, and our guide very wisely said, "Mate, you get frostbite. Just don't do it." <laughs> And they were like, why not? And then he was like, because it's stupid. <laughs> Just <don't do> it. <laughs> if I have to explain stupid to you, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe it was the attitude. Uh, but they, they were like really upset that they couldn't do that. I've got to say, that sounds absolutely, absolutely mental doing that. I mean, how cold did it get there? It got as cold. Well, most days it was minus 20 degrees Celsius. Um so in camp, that was the average temperature. And funny enough, it doesn't, it doesn't feel so bad because it's dry cold. So it doesn't get into your bones. You know, um, I think it's worse than the highlands of Scotland where I currently am because it's so damp here. But no, over there by Sidley, at Sidley, it was actually okay. We were forced to wait a few days in the crater where we were camping because there was a um, bit of a gale and we were covered in snow and that was pretty epic. But I have to say, it wasn't so bad as I thought. We had really good gear. 
But I think when you're climbing, that cold does take a toll on your body. And I actually lost all five kilograms I had gained over six months. I lost it all on that one three-week expedition. Well, one week of climbing, but still, yeah, it's, it, it just fell off. Yeah, every day was just a complete survival uh, test. I think it's good. Maybe I need to go out there to lose some weight. Holy shit. Five kilos. God, I could be super skinny by the time I get back if I'm there for a couple of weeks. Or super dead. Yeah, I was going to say I wouldn't recommend that either as a crash diet. <laughs> One week in Antarctica. It's what you write out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would, but in a really lethal way. <laughs> <laughs> okay do you know what let's move on from antarctica because we've got we've got a couple of couple of volcanoes to talk about so mm-hmm. we've got pico de or orizaba i think i pronounced that correctly um I yeah tell us, <laughs> tell us tell us about that challenge oh that was actually so that was in mexico that's the highest peak in uh technically north america if you're talking about the uh, tectonic plates that's north america uh, yeah, so it was about an hour from um, Mexico City, and it was I, it was challenging in the end because I thought I, I got there thinking, oh, I've been to Antarctica, I've been training for ages, no problem with this one, and it's not a very high one, it's a bit higher than Sydney at five thousand odd meters, but again, it, I got there and it's a lovely conical volcano, just how you imagine one should look in the kiddies' um, coloring books, you know, very perfect shape. And it was going to be only a three-day um, climb. But the problem is you go from sea level uh, to the base camp, which is 2,500 meters or so. And that's, that's doable. That's fine. That's just like a village, actually, called uh, Tlachi Chuka. I think I've said it right. Um, but then in one day, you jump from 2,005 to 4,000 and above meters. And uh, really... In reality, the body can't easily take a jump of higher than, I want to say, four to 500 meters altitude gain in one day. So we were doing much more than that in one day. And even though I'd been at altitude previously, you know, it was really tough because you get headaches. And uh, we were drinking water the whole day, which apparently helps, and then eating a lot of sugar. But um, it was quite tough to acclimatize when we first got there. But then we felt better after about two days and thought, okay, let's just go for it. And it was myself, my friend Tina, who's a veteran climber from the States. She's brilliant. And um, some other guys. And we went to the top. And the thing is that I was so confident that I kind of thought it'd be easy, which is never a good thing when you're climbing mountains because end of the day, you're not in charge. The mountain and the weather are, and they'll just kick you in the butt um, for being so arrogant. And we're nearly at the top. And we're on the snow field and suddenly I just couldn't, I, I bonked to use a technical term. <laughs> you just hit the wall and it's, it's awful because your brain says it isn't that far away. But when you see the peak above you, you just think it could be on Mars. It's just so impossible to even get there. And so it was dawn, the sun was rising and I'm just there shivering in this awful cold and wind, strong wind. And I just said to Tina, I, I can't do it. I'm really sorry, I just can't move, I can't do it. And Tina, who's actually about 72 now, so she was in her 60s when she began, she, she's made of steel, she's, yeah, she's amazing. She just turned around and calmly, with her Zen Californian stare, says, you can do it, one foot, uh, one step at a time. And I just kind of said, 
no. And then she goes, no, you can do it. And so after like about an hour of this, I just finally got to the top and it was just like the most exhausting thing I'd ever, ever lived through. And at the top, I sat there in the, um, the lee of the crater pretty much out of the wind. And I was shaking, my hands were shaking for 45 minutes and I was just crying. And I wasn't actually sad. I was just physically so depleted. I was just crying and it was really weird. And then it passed and we came down and we we're fine. But that one instance just really taught me that I can't take things for granted, that you have to just be really careful when you climb, pace yourself. Yeah, yeah. I only hit the wall jogging. Uh, I, was, I, I had this crazy idea during lockdown to just jog because it was free and I didn't have any money. And I, I, I'd got halfway out, sort of halfway between Gillingham and Raynham. And then I got, which doesn't mean anything to anyone that doesn't even Medway. And I got there and I was like, I've got to go back. And I just, the thought of just, I just couldn't do it. And it, was, it took me, I had to sit down for about an hour and it's just, like you said, one, one foot, one step at a time. I couldn't imagine doing that halfway up a mountain. <laughs> it's a really hard feeling, though, isn't it? It's like that movie, Run Fat Boy Run. It, it, it's just a wall. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's just it. And it's just your, your brain just goes, the brain and your body will just go, nope, can't, stop. Nope. Yeah. I think it's self-preservation, but it's not very good if you're self-preserving on a mountain in the cold. <laughs> you just die anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll just sit here and die from exposure. <laughs> I used to do a lot of hiking out here when I lived because I used to live down where my parents live now and mm. there were a couple of times where I went hiking with my friends and I was just like uh, and these aren't huge mountains they're not I'm gonna be fair but when you're not used to doing it all the time like they were doing I was getting three quarters of the way up and I'm looking at this incline with these huge stones and huge rocks I'm like how the hell am I gonna do this my brain doesn't want to go and my friends are like stop Let's breathe. Let's take a rest for a moment and then we'll move on. And it's just one mm. step. Just take one little step after. And then just being at the top of those mountains is just incredible. It, the view is worth it. Yeah. Were you doing that at nighttime or during the day? Well, huh, funnily enough, one I did at nighttime, which was beyond horrific because coming down, I slid and I've got problems with my hand. And I landed on my hand in the oh. wrong way. Oh my God. Never again am I doing that. Going up at night, not a problem. Coming down, never again. Mm. Never so you didn't again. have you couldn't see a thing then when you're going down. That that's quite that's very difficult. Uh yes. And apparently we were supposed to be able to adjust the lack of light. I was like, no. Just no. Oh, anyway. We're going on a tangent, which we've been doing all day, me and Chris, unfortunately. Um, Chris is meant to ask the next question, not me. Yeah. All right, I can do. Uh, let's go. Um, what, what went wrong in South America? Because that, that went quite badly wrong, didn't it? It did. So the next mountain, thanks to this volcano I did, number three was called, um, here's my really, really great accent, Ojos del Salado which means eyes of the salt plain. So the high altitude plains um, in Chile are very beautiful. And this is the highest peak there, the highest, sorry, volcano there. Um, well, so the first time I tried Ojos del Salado, um, in short, both myself and my, my teammate got uh, mountain sickness, uh, so altitude sickness. And I was first, lucky me. I We were at the high camp. And let me just say that um, the high camp is as high as the top of Kilimanjaro. 
So it's pretty high. It's uh, 5,900 meters, oh, sorry, almost 6,000 meters, the high camp on Ojos. And um, it takes two weeks to even get there because you've got to go so slowly just to get used to the height. So I, I led the way by throwing up in the heat and having to be rushed down a bit lower to um, recuperate. And I was fine the next day, actually. And that was only a um, practice climb. So it wasn't even the big day, the big summit day. But then the next day, which was summit day, my teammate, um, Matt, he also got very ill. And so it was just us two, we two, and the guide. And the guide just said, do you want to go to the summit still? And Matt said, no, F that. And I said, oh, we could try. And then the, the guy just says, no, I'm calling it, you know, it's going to be a gale anyway, so whatever. I think let's just go down again. So basically the guide who didn't seem like keen in the first place anyway to go, um, he just said we, we, we couldn't go up. And I actually asked to go with a different team and join them to go up, but he also said no. So our guide said no. So that was that. And that was a huge blow because I was thinking that if I can't complete one of the volcanoes, I can't do the whole project because it wouldn't count as having climbed them all for the record, to set the record. So that's what happened there. The mountain bit me in the backside. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, it's not like you don't go with any of your problems. I think in every every volcano, you've got something that not necessarily goes wrong, but is a bit of a challenge to kind of overcome. And then you've got Mount, how am I going to pronounce this? Giluve? Badly. I, I just said Giluve, and I think it, people don't seem to mind. Um, how would That's you good. say it, Chris? Yeah, Chris, how would you say it? I wouldn't. <laughs> that's why he left that question for me i knew it i, I, I knew it I, I'd, I'd probably throw it just because i'd try and put it, make everything slightly german i'd probably call it um gilvu change the w to a v which would be horribly wrong but if it's in it's in new guinea or it's in guinea that was a german colony so i'm going to stick with that actually this is true maybe it's mount gilvu but i don't i don't sorry that's a really bad accent too um no mount gilvu is the highest volcano in papua new guinea and um Actually, so I, I was licking my wounds, I guess. I hate that term, but I was after the Chilean debacle and thinking, what is the point? I should just cut my losses now, get my flights refunded, pay back my sponsors and just forget about it. But then a friend of mine said, no, just keep going. You already got tickets to Mount Gilloway, um, to Papua New Guinea, so just go. And the thing is, for the previous year, I hadn't been very keen to go because I'd been reading about the outback of Papua New Guinea. And... Not to make assumptions, but everything I read about was either about the gangs who try to kill tourists or, um, what was it, uh, witch burnings or cannibalism, especially in the outback. And I really wasn't so keen. And there was also an attack on these tourists uh, on the Black Cat Trail in the north, not far from the mountain. Uh, and that was about a few months before I was going to go. And I thought, I don't want to be macheted to pieces. And, oh, 
I mean, they were fine in the end, the tourists, but they were attacked, you know, pretty badly and robbed. But in the end, I thought I, I should just, just just do it. So, and my husband kept making these jokes, which were not very helpful, like, oh, you're going to be a well-seasoned traveler. Get it? Seasoned as in a cauldron? And I'm like, that's not very funny. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> I love your but, husband. I think he's great. Keep him. Do you know what? You've got to bring him on. We'll get him to make yeah. a couple more jokes. Yeah, no, he's nuts too. Um, yeah. Uh, but at the time I thought that's not very nice. Um, but now it's very funny now that I'm home safe in one piece. But I'm out going to be, yeah, it's brilliant because I flew to um, Singapore and then you change in Singapore to fly up to um, Port Moresby where I was told to not leave the hotel or go outside or show my face anywhere in public because I might get robbed. So I thought, oh, this is great. So I didn't do that. I just stayed in the hotel for half a day, got on the flight, and then flew up to um, Mount Hagen, which is the town next to Mount Gilloway. And Mount Hagen or Hagen wasn't uh, visited by Europeans or, you know, um, Caucasians, Australians in this case, until 1930s. And apparently when they got there, they were the Leahy brothers. They were gold miners or gold prospectors. They they found basically what they described as a people living back in pre-industrial times. I mean, it was really just um, very sort of uh, rudimentary living. And so these guys built this runway there and plonked down planes and kind of just changed the entire landscape completely. And it's very strange because it's such a, you get there and everything feels so, um, I think, ancient, ancient forests, ancient scenery, landscapes. I mean, very undisturbed in most most ways. But Mount Hagen's actually a town that's got everything you want. It's, it's a very strange contrast to the landscape. Anyway, um, Mount Gilloway is just across Mount Hagen, Mount Hagen. And it's a volcano that's erupted slowly. So it's kind of been oozing over a long time. It's now dormant, but because it was oozing slowly, it's like a big deflated layer cake. It's really sloppy and kind of like weird and congealed. And you have to hike about 20 miles to get to the base. And it was really fun because I had I was there with a local guide team. I could only find one team to even take me because no one really goes there. And um, these guys all had a machete in their hand each. And I was saying we're climbing a mountain. Do we really need a machete? And he said, oh, yeah, you know, just in case. And I was like, okay. And these guys were brilliant because they were so good to me and they knew the landscape, the the paths. And one of our crew was called um, Simpson and he went the whole way barefoot and he was brilliant. He, um, He was completely manic and he didn't speak any English and I couldn't speak their languages. And but he was the kind of guy who you can imagine base jumping. It was that kind of manic gleam in his eye. He, nothing scared him. And he had one big toe missing in a really clean cut-off way, as if it was just chonk, chonked off. And I just thought, I don't want to ask what happened there because it's so weird. And he was great. And he could climb anything just barefoot the whole way. And when I said to him, don't you need shoes to climb a mountain? And he began laughing and apparently said, shoes would hold him back because they'd get in the way. So um, it was a really good team. And uh, Mount Gilloway is not very high. It's about 4,000 metres at all. And we slept in, they slept in a 
teepee made of made of twigs and leaves overnight and I slept in my tent and then the next day went to the top and it ended in climbing a rock face in the rain and that was fine it was actually really good um the problem was coming down the hill um the whole way down uh the the main guide Luke he kept saying oh you must get back to the van in the village before 7 p.m we must get there before 7 p.m and I was saying why what's what 7 p.m Nightfall, yeah, but we have had torches and there's so many of us, six of us. Yes, but it's dangerous. And we actually didn't get there before seven. And I found out what he meant by dangerous. We only got into the rainforest at the bottom of the slopes at 7 p.m. And the minute night fell, it went from like pretty much daylight to just dark, dark rainforest, dark under the canopy. And we had to run. Luke just said, run, run, run. And I, th- I figured out, he said that basically we're not, we weren't on our own turf out there. We were on some other tribe's turf. And you can see markings on the trees and things and the rocks. And we, sh- we really shouldn't be trespassing after dark on their turf. And so we had to run for about an hour through this rainforest in the dark, falling over a lot of slippery trees and things and logs, just panicked. And it was really scary. And at the same time, the forest just came to life. It, these insects were just screaming. I mean, really loud, chirpy, weird insects. So eventually we got down and I threw up in the clearing and then we got home and that was fine. But um, on the way down, it got pretty intense, I have to say. Yeah, that does sound absolutely bonkers. <laughs> it was um, fun in a, in a terrifying kind of way, I guess, in hindsight. Yeah, it's one of those things afterwards where you go, well, that was fun, but at the time your heart's banging on your rib cage. <laughs> Definitely. I, I couldn't imagine life after that that half an hour, the last half hour. I just couldn't see myself kind of, it, all that matter was right then and, and there. So. But after that, you go back to South America. Does your uh, second attempt go a lot smoother than the first one? Yes and no. So I went back to Ojo and this time my husband, my bonkers husband, Douglas, came with me because I was so down about screwing up, I guess, with getting mountain sickness, although it's not really my fault. But uh, he said, my husband said, oh, I'll go with you for the first week. I'll take off some time. I'll train with you for the for the easy first acclimatization bit, up to 5,000 meters. And, you know, just kind of be there with you for, for a week. And so we had a really good time. We had no guide for once. So we had our own little Jeep thing. And we were racing around the desert, desert, um, you know, just exploring and climbing things and just generally being manic. And um, like kids, that was from school, but not home yet. So you're running around unsupervised. And um, yeah, after the first week, he went back to the UK to, you know, earn money and be normal and work. And I stayed on with a different guide. And together we tried again for the summit. Uh, but this time it didn't, I, have, I hate saying this, we got to the top, we got to the summit, the, the crater summit, which is the rim. And strangely enough, the the summit of Ojos de Salado is in two countries. Half is, is in Chile and half is in Argentina. And so the Chilean side has this annoying rock face, 30 meters high, which is only in Chile and not, but still counts as, as a summit, the true summit, because the crater is you know, obviously lower than the rock face. And so they say that once you've reached 6,000 meters in altitude, your body 
reacts differently. Everyone's different. You don't know how you're going to react until you've reached that threshold of altitude. And I, I hadn't really been that high before, not above 6,000. And I think my brain just melted because the guide, I think his brain also didn't do too well because we went the wrong way, pretty much. We chose the harder path. We He wanted to go across the snowfield, but mm, it, it was not safe and we didn't have the right gear for some reason. So we chose instead to go up a rock waterfall and that was just punishing. I mean, it feels like you're, we weren't carrying much, but it feels like you're carrying a suit full of lead. Every step is just extra, like twice the effort or more when you're at that height. And the air is a bit more thin, oxygen's thinner. So it's really that much harder. And after about two hours of climbing this rock waterfall, which wasn't very stable, we get to the, the top, the, the, the summit, the, sorry, the rim, the crater rim, at which point the, the, the guide, who was in his 60s, so he was tough as nails, he went under a rock and promptly kind of fainted or just had to rest. The howling wind didn't help. And then I saw that there was a rock face still to climb. And I just said, come on, let's go, let's go, let's do the last bit. And the guide said, no, we're not doing it because I'm exhausted, you're exhausted. You know, this is a difficult rock, like a rock wall with a rope, you have to be on your on form to actually climb that in this wind in the first place. And so the second guide um, said, oh, we can still make it, we can still make it. And basically he said, no, um, we're not doing it, it's too dangerous. We have to, we're only halfway on our journey. We have to go down the whole way still as well. And looking back, I mean, I was, I was really gutted, obviously at the time, I was so upset and angry at myself and at nature and that the gods were making us this weak. But uh, he was right. It was the right call. I think if we had gone on to do the the final 30 meters, we would have perhaps had an accident. And then how do you get down, you know, from that? So I think he was right to not do it. But as a result, I did not technically complete all the summits uh, due to the 30 meters of gain. I did not go up. So got it. Only 30, well, I was going to say it's only 30 meters, but that 30 meters matters a lot at the end of the day. It does. It means everything. It means you haven't actually summited properly. Yeah. Well, you, I'm going to say Mount Kilimanjaro is the next one that you climb and pretty much you have attempted and achieved so much, so much at this point. Is Mount Kilimanjaro easier? It's it's easier in some ways than definitely Ojos, because that was the tallest, the highest one in the whole list of volcanoes. That was almost 7,000 meters tall, which is pretty damn tall. It's the highest volcano in the world, the Chilean one. And Kilimanjaro is a 4,000 meters lower than that. Um, then again, height isn't everything. It's about climate, about air pressure. It's about humidity. It's different things. So a lower mountain can be harder than a higher mountain for that reason. And everyone knows Kilimanjaro. They think, oh, it's one of those bucket list things and swim with the dolphins, climb Kilimanjaro, write a book, you know, that kind of crap. Um, but it's not easy. I wouldn't say it's easy. People underestimate it too much. You have deaths on Kilimanjaro all the time and injuries. Although they have a very good safety uh, system in place, people can go there when they aren't ready to go. And that I think is why they get hurt. But by this point, I climbed it once already. And I thought, oh, second time round climbing Kilimanjaro. I do it in four days, not nine. Easy peasy. And 
I got to the top, fine, got to the summit, no problem. But I was vomiting every ooh, hour, <laughs> sick as a dog, but I got to the top all the same and that was fine. But no, I would not say Kelly is an easy mountain at all. It's, it's the highest peak mountain and volcano in Africa. So everyone thinks that that is the thing to climb, but I wouldn't recommend it if you're not at least training or jogging, Chris. It is on my list, but not because it's a bucket list thing, but because I've got this bizarre interest in the German Second Reich and colonies. And Kilimanjaro is where the von Leto Vorbeck, the German general in the First World War, based all his troops. So it's Mm. like, yeah, that would be quite cool to go up there. A lot of history, definitely. I'm going to Aruba and all those areas is very interesting, uh, for sure. It's on my list, but only because I'm a nerd. <laughs> no. Well, taking the nine-day one is much, much easier, honestly. And the guides are so great there. They're all really good. And you can also turn back whenever you want, if that helps to know. So <laughs> That's probably best I don't know that. Hmm. <laughs> You've gone five feet, Mr. Sams. Why are you stopping? No, nah, done. <laughs> Where's the nearest KFC? <laughs> you, you climbed the wrong volcano at one point, didn't you? So, um, yes, another plot twist. Um, so every single volcano seemed to have its own plot twists. Uh, so the highest volcano in Asia, on the Asian continent, is was at the time widely assumed to be Damavand in Iran, a beautiful conical volcano. And so I climbed that. I went. I did Kilimanjaro, Damavand, and tried Elbrus all in the same month of April. So Damavand was my second volcano that month, a week after Kilimanjaro. And that was a hard one, but it was actually fine in the end. I got lungs full of sulfur during it. That was great. Throw up again. There's a lot of throwing up on mountains. Um, Then the guy threw up too when I threw up, so it's a chain of vomit. But, sorry, that was disgusting. Uh, But it was fine. I made it, and Damavan's beautiful. Iran is beautiful. But then I came home to recuperate for a bit and was on this chat board forum thing quite obscure and then i came across this thing saying this could be the highest volcano in asia not damavand and it was a satellite photo a really grainy of a volcanic mountain range in north west china called karadasi and no one apparently at the time had climbed it because you've got to actually get there and find out the right peak it wasn't really well known at all and I thought, oh, shit, I can't believe Damavan may not be Asia's volcano, Asia's highest volcano. And to this day, I'm not sure if it is or not, because Guinness World Records wasn't sure either when I applied for the record, well, before, when I eventually tried to get uh, some information. And that's why there is no record at all for Guinness for the highest, for claiming the highest volcanoes on each continent, because they, they're not sure exactly which one's higher either so uh i might have climbed the wrong volcano by climbing down but there it is you may have climbed the wrong volcano but you continued your journey yes despite everything i thought i'll just demo finish this project because it isn't about whether i reach the top it isn't about me being an egomaniac and saying i've climbed everything and there is to climb no it wasn't about me end of the day it really hit me that i'm doing this for charity I don't need a record to my name um, that was too vain. It gave me kind of a reality check, I think, that it really wasn't about me. It's about my dad and 
cancer research and everything else like that. So I went on to complete, as I can be, at least complete this thing. And I went on to climb Elbrus that same month, uh, that same April, um, which was pre-season time in Russia. So Elbrus is in the um, Caucasus, uh, Caucasus Mountains. Um, and interestingly, sorry, slight digression, it's a cousin of um, Damavand. They're, they're kind of related because Damavand is in the Alborz range and Elbrus is the same word as Alborz in Persian. So Elbrus, is, I think it literally says mountain range or something. So Elbrus is the highest uh, peak and volcano in Russia. It has two heads and uh, one is higher than the other one. So you climb that higher peak. And when I got there in April, um, it was, there were no tourists there. The peak wasn't even open yet. And I had this really kick-ass guide who was doing, doing the peak with me especially. And we went up and the weather was fine and we were climatizing fine. And the thing is, here we go again with the with bonking. Uh, it was really strange. The second day of our um, practice hikes, the sky was just completely blue. There was no wind. And we're climbing up to the, uh, the um, oh, sorry, what's it called? The rocks halfway up just to practice. And the more I climbed, I, f I followed the guide, the further away he got, and he wasn't going very fast. And I kept falling behind and falling behind, behind and I kept, kept saying, oh, just give me a break. I'll be okay. Just let me breathe. And so he'd wait. I mean, let me continue. And I fall behind again. And I just felt completely drained mentally. I was physically actually probably okay. Because, I mean, why wouldn't I be? I'd be so conditioned by then. Um, but mentally, I just thought... I'm so sick of being on the road all the time with strangers. I'm so tired, like just emotionally. I never, I never used to be like this um, before ever. And I've been on the road at that point about four months almost um, away from my husband, who you know, was a new, a new husband, uh, a recent husband. <laughs> and I was very lonely. And I just thought, you know what? I, I, I really hate this right now. I'll just go home and see my cats and my husband. And um, I just said to him, Ivan, I'm really sorry. I have to just stop. I don't want to climb. And he goes, what today? But some days tomorrow, we just keep going. And I said, no, I don't want to climb the mountain at all anymore. No, I'm going to stop here. I'm calling it quits. And he was really surprised, like you lazy worse kind of thing, because he was really hardcore. And that night, as it happened, there was a gale with 37 miles per hour winds. And it really, it really wasn't a good night to climb anyway. So maybe it was not meant to be. And at that point, on what would have been my, my last summit, four months record, you know, inside or four months time frame, I kind of just kind of collapsed and gave up, which really wasn't like me. And I went home for six weeks to just do nothing. Yeah. But then um, after about six weeks, I of just eating, watching TV, I didn't go near the gym. I kind of rallied, I guess. I kind of bounced back and... My mother, who's, who was Chinese and the most kind of risk-averse person you can imagine, she was like, I'll pay you some money just to go, just complete it, get this thing done, uh, go climb. And my husband was the same, just, just do it. I went back with Tina, who came to save the day again from California, and we went in June this time, and the sun was out, and the tourists were all there, 
everyone was back for the tourist season and it was a completely different place. There was no more snow and dark clouds. It was just a lovely place. And maybe because I hadn't been doing much besides eating crisps and watching TV for six weeks, I felt so on form. Um, Tina and I joined a, a big team of people and we just went up the mountain blasting our way through and it couldn't have been an easier climb. I was just on peak form. And then so in June, uh, after five and a half months, not four, we uh, finished the last volcano together um, in Elbrus. And that was really, really fantastic. Yeah. So after all that pain, there was, you know, a lot of happiness. I, I, I do have a, a nerdy history question. Uh, something I've wondered for quite a while. In 1942, the German mountain division climbed Elbrus and mm-hmm. planted a flag. Do you know if it's still up there? <laughs> You're on the summit. Yeah. Um, I don't think I saw any flags up there. There is a, a wee monument there, like a rock and metal thing. But I think it's to all the fallen climbers, I think. I'm not too sure. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the Soviets letting a Third Reich flag flutter up on the mountain. But I, 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 it was just something I'd always wondered about whether it was still up there or not. I don't think there was a Third Reich flag on the top of Mount Elbrus, I'm afraid. No, um, no I, I, I really didn't think it would be. <laughs> It was during the Caucasus campaign and uh, the mountain, the mountain regiment went, bet we could climb that. So they went up and they sent photos back to Berlin of, look, we climbed the mountain. And um, yeah, they, they, leadership were not best pleased. But, uh, so I just wondered if there's anything up there for, for it. <laughs> no, uh, there are very few artifacts up there. It's, it's so windy that everything gets blown away. Um, even people, but uh, there is a little rock thing, but I don't think it's a German monument of any kind either. Um, yeah, but that was um, pretty amazing to get up to the top. Yeah, it sounded like the gave you enough stimulus to go back that you, that you just did need a rest. A change is as good as a rest. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that I think by the time I finished um, Elbrus the first, or tried to finish Elbrus the first time, I was actually underweight and anemic and all this kind of stuff. I was really not very healthy as well. And just in a really bad place mentally. And going home, seeing my cats, who are lovely, and watching TV, just fedging out for six weeks um, was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Home comforts. So um, what did, because obviously this is an amazing achievement, but what did, what did you learn about yourself along the way? Um, I think to borrow a theme from you guys that I'm a bit bonkers. <laughs> Um, I guess it's the main thing where you think, you know, you can't do something and then you try and actually you find out that you can. And that's, that that was my case too. My asthma somehow, I did have some problems on the way with my lung function going down and other issues. I had to take more medication, but, or be get reserve medication more like, um, but that didn't stop me either. Uh, you know, I have have my, my limits, obviously I wouldn't ever do Everest. That's just not for me, but um, I guess you get to learn more about what you can and can't do in life physically. And I think also on a more esoteric level, uh, I guess um, one thing I learned was that I was so lost in planning this whole volcano, <clears throat> sorry, odyssey for months and months and then doing it for months and months that I was very, I was really lost in the whole idea of it and lost in the planning and always away with the fairies just planning out everything and getting sponsorship and whatnot. And I spent so much time focused on that, that I forgot to focus on my day-to-day life. 
And when I came back, I realized that I was done uh, being lost in big plans and big dreams. And it's, it's really good to just be in the here and now and take life as it comes, or, or you miss all the small important things too. So I used to be really into goals and planning, and now I'm kind of more take it easy, you know, taking taking what's happening right, right now around you because, you know, who knows how long it might last, but just be more present. And I hate the term, but be more mindful. Ah, cringe. <laughs> well, Sophie, this has been mind-blowing, inspirational, crazy, and maybe I should move my ass to actually do something a bit more inspirational rather than just sitting on my ass and writing history books because I am sitting right now and gazing at the Slovakian mountains. And yeah, I think it's ridiculous. I've got to go and do something. You've inspired me. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Do remind us the name of your book. Oh, yes. My book, which is now out in paperback. Oh, sorry. Next month. Um, is called, uh, very prosaically, Climbing the Seven Volcanoes, A Search for Strength. <laughs> and I'm going to let Chris do the roundup because I can never do it right. Oh, yeah, and I've got it all pre-programmed into my head. So we'll um, we'll get it onto the History Hack bookshop, which means with every sale, the podcast get a tiny slice of money. But at the same time, you will get a larger slice than if it was to go through a popular South American forested areas website where the money will be funneled into evil Death Star plans that I'm sure the owner has that if he finds out about, will sue me. Got it. (laughs) That was was talking absolute nonsense. (laughs) So thanks again for joining us, Sophie. It's been great. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.